This is Transistor, a science series from PRX. Imagine sitting down to a delicious meal. You hear the voices of your favorite friends around the table. You're hungry and you can't wait to eat, and everything looks absolutely delicious. Just before dessert is served, an aroma of sweet milk chocolate wafts out of the kitchen, and you're immediately transported back to your childhood home with a vivid memory of your mom bringing out a cake for your birthday. Now, it's been years and years since you've even thought about that chocolate cake. Why now? There's something very interesting about the anatomy of the olfactory system and the memory system of the brain that probably explains why it has this unique power to, to transport one back in time to a particular phase in your life or, or a particular day. That's Dr. Howard Eichenbaum. He uses smells to explore the brain's capacity for memory. Now, Howard is going to tell us about the anatomy of the olfactory system and what it is about this system that makes smells and odors so emotionally evocative. We'll also get to talk to a chef and ask her how she uses this evocative power of taste and smells in her own culinary creations. I was on the back porch and my mom had given me a, an orange and it was so juicy and so sweet. I remember the smell, I remember the taste and it was dripping down my chin and down through my shirt and dripping off of my elbows. <laughs> this is Totally Cerebral, part of Transistor from PRX, supported by the Sloan Foundation. I'm Dr. Wendy Suzuki. Howard Eichenbaum is a professor of neuroscience at Boston University, and his specialty is studying memory, how we form memories using olfactory stimuli. Why? Because he studies rodents. And early on in his career, he realized that the best way to study memory in rodents is to think like a rodent. For rodents, what do they remember? They remember smells. So to be able to study that, Howard became an expert at studying the sense of smell. When I began my studies of memory, I decided, uh, having tried lots of other things, that one way we could make these animals smarter, perhaps, was to do what, what to sort of follow a slogan we have in our laboratory, and that is to meet them halfway back to their ethology, to their natural lives, and how they, how they investigate the world and pursue their aims in the world. And so one of those objectives was to simply pick a sensory modality, we call it a type of sensory information, that they're they use in their everyday life for everything from identifying friends and foes to other individual animals to uh, food finding and to sexual behavior and so on. And that is a olfaction, of course, so we decided to try olfactory stimuli. And sure enough, we found they were much better at using olfactory stimuli to, to learn associations with rewards and so on than they were with visual cues or auditory cues. So in order to do this, Howard and his team had to figure out how to use the rat's exquisite sense of smell to test their memory. The cleverest version of this, which was done by one of my postdocs, was to not only use odors, but to mix those odors in with playground sand. So if you could, he would take common household spices and scents, things like oregano and cinnamon, mix them in with a clean playground sand, which is almost odorless itself, and bury a food reward at the bottom of this little cup full of sand. 
And it turns out if you give rats uh, two cups, for example, that one that smells like oregano, one that smells like cinnamon, and you bury the reward in the oregano one, it takes animals of almost exactly one trial, just one attempt to learn which one's the good one, and subsequently will only go for the oregano one. And they remember that for at least a week, uh, and they can do so for many, a long list of odors. So we, I find this absolutely amazing. Nobody in the laboratory is that good at remembering which one has the food for a week, and I certainly can't do that. So it turns out rats can uh, demonstrate rather amazing uh, memory capacities if you give them a, the kind of information they're used to using in their everyday lives and you let them express what they know about that information in a way that, that goes with the way in which they express their memories, in this case by foraging for food. Smell is also a key way that rats use to communicate with each other. Uh, by foods they have eaten, uh, sort of uh, one, one rat telling another where's the good food to eat. Uh, so it's known that if uh, that rats are foragers, they live together in little burrows, of course, and some animals will go out and look for food and come back again to the to the to the group to the group uh, location. Uh, and when they do so, uh, they tend to you know sort of sniff at one another when they first come back again. And it turns out that uh, the odor from uh, something that that a rat would have eaten mixes in with another natural constituents of, of breath called carbon disulfide, which is this sort of malodorous, sulfurous, bad breath smell we all have from time to time. Uh, but for rats, that's a good thing. It turns out that if you combine any odor, any food odor kind of thing, or any kind of arbitrary odor with carbon disulfide and, prevent, and present it to another rat, they will then thereafter prefer that odor. They automatically have a transferred preference for that, and hence they'll follow the rat back out again to the location where that food uh, was given. It's in a sense a sort of test to say, he ate that odor, he ate this, this flavor of food, and the odor that goes with it. He survived, he looks good right now, so that must be good news. I'll follow him out and get some food myself. This is a situation where one really follows the idea of having using a sensory modality at which they're particularly adept, uh, and a way of expressing memory by, by having a food preference in which is very natural to their behavioral repertoire. So there are clearly ways that we are like rats and other ways that we are not. So we don't go up to each other, sniff each other's breath and say, okay, I'll have that for dinner too. But in fact, Howard told me that we might have the capacity to do that. So we're not as good at smelling things on the ground, you know, following traces like dogs following uh, trails, because we don't have a snout. We don't have that part of the olfactory apparatus, which is really good at picking odors from the ground. But we do have, that's just as good as those animals, is what's called the, well, I'll give you the scientific term, retronasal apparatus, which is the smells that come in from behind the nose, that's what retronasal means, that essentially that when you take a, have food in your mouth and you're chewing it or you're drinking a fluid, the odors come up from there going from the mouth into the nose through the back end of the nose. And that part of our system is completely as good as that of, of other animals. And that's where essentially flavors really work for us. That's where odors add to the quality of flavors. The other half of the story that was fit with that is the notion that it's really only humans that have developed a culture of foods. So as other animals, where they're trail following and so on, just sort of eat the foods that right, they, they pick up. They don't, they don't cook. They don't have cuisine, right? And we do. We've developed cuisine. We've added spices. Animals don't add spices to foods. We've had ways of technologies for creating foods with optimal flavors like cheeses and wine and so on. And I'm sure it's through our evolution over you know, thousands thousands of years by which our apparatus has developed to really appreciate that information. Scientists are just beginning to understand the complexities of the olfactory system, whereas great chefs have been playing with our sense of taste and smell and flavor for hundreds of years. 
Recently, I got to talk with executive chef Anita Lowe at one of my favorite restaurants in New York City's West Village called Anissa. I took along my friend Kent Kirschenbaum, a chemist from NYU, who is also the co-founder of the Experimental Cuisine Collective. Anita Lowe brought out some of her signature dishes and gave us a glimpse into how she creates memorable meals by playing with flavor and memory. Before the first course was served, Kent and Anita told me about some of their earliest olfactory memories. Gosh, I have, I have one um, from the age of two. I was in Malaysia at, at my uh, aunt's house. Mm -hmm. And I know I was two because that was, you know, that was that trip, which was a big trip for us. I was on the back porch and my mom had given me a, an orange. And fruit in Malaysia is just incredible. Mm. Um, and I was eating this orange, and I was left alone to eat this orange for some reason. Um, but it was, it was so juicy and so sweet, and I just I can remember, yeah, I absolutely I remember the smell, I remember the taste, and it was dripping so juicy that it was dripping down my chin, and down through my shirt, and dripping off of my elbows. <laughs> and then my mom came over and like cleaned me up. So. <laughs> That's great. What about you, Kent? What are some of your early olfactory memories? Some of my early olfactory memories are watching my father cook. And I have to say that my father is about the worst cook <laughs> I've ever encountered. Oh. And this gentleman was unable to make himself tea. But there was one thing he could do, and that was throw meat on a barbecue uh -huh. grill. Uh -huh. And uh, we spent some time when I was a child in Argentina. Um, and where they have a very rich tradition of barbecue. Mm. And so that's what he learned to do, and that's what I watched him, the only thing that I watched him preparing. Wow. And since then, I've just been captivated by smoke flavors mm. and, and, and fragrances. Uh -huh. I just think they're terrific, and I've even gone to the effort of making my own liquid smoke. <laughs> that's great. A great side line for a chemist. Absolutely. <laughs> to be able to I want to know how you make that liquid smoke. <laughs> you can tell me later. Secret. But yeah. yeah. Our sense of smell is so powerful in allowing us to evoke a particular time and place. And this is where we understand the unique anatomical pathways of the olfactory system compared to other sensory systems. The olfactory system has a, an immediate access within one connection, one synapse as we call it, uh, to this temporal lobe system, of which you, Wendy, of course, are highly familiar to the, to the entorhinal cortex, and it pervades it very heavily, and in a part of the entorhinal cortex that projects to a structure we all know and love called the hippocampus, which is absolutely crucial for memory, and the part of, it projects to the part of the hippocampus that actually resurrects context, resurrects times and spaces in which we see things. Other sensory systems have many more connections, many more synapses before they reach either the memory centers of the brain focused on the hippocampus or the emotional centers of the brain focused on the amygdala. The olfactory system has this marvelous way of being very directly accessed to emotional processes, to memory processes, and to sort of decision-making processes and in a unique way that matures over time as we develop our so-called wisdom that comes with age. The course of, of olfactory pathways are very interesting and, and unique in a way that not only is this, this powerful and immediate impact on 
the temporal lobe system for memory that we know so well, but also a direct impact into other structures that are have huge control over emotion, like the amygdala and parts of the hypothalamus, which we know have an enormous amount to do with affect. And those ones may be the ones that are first developed and come into play immediately. At the other end of the spectrum, then there's the memory pathways, which of course we, we build our memories around things we remember about odors, things they're associated with, much of which we know and think about olfaction really has to do with bringing back memories of things that are associated with odors. So uh, as, as you know, it's, it's hard to explain what an odor smells like. We usually explain what it smells like either by resorting to that amygdala system about emotion by saying it smells good or it smells bad, or when we try to be more specific, we allude to other things that smell like the thing you're currently smelling. So we, in other words, tie it to the associations of those odors. And then thirdly, the probably the last developing part of this is there are also direct access from the olfactory system into the frontal lobes, uh, and particularly those parts about the frontal lobes that judge uh, the values and qualities of odors that, that excite us and turn us on and make us decide to go for them or not, to make, help us make fine decisions about what smells good and so on, make decisions about those odors, whether they're the right ones, what, whether to add a pinch of salt or we need just a little more of this sort of spice. One of the things that's so unique about the olfactory system is that in one synapse, olfactory information can get to both the hippocampus and the amygdala. So if you can imagine one whiff of an orange will immediately, in one synapse, connect you to the major long-term memory and emotional centers of the brain. In contrast, seeing an orange will take many, many synapses to finally get that information after it's processed and the color gets added and the meaning gets added to that visual information. Finally, it gets to the memory and the emotional centers. So that is why there's such a big difference in the emotional resonance that you get from an olfactory stimulus on one hand and a visual stimulus on the other. It's that speed of connection with the memory and emotional parts of the brain. These connections not only help us understand why olfactory stimuli can be so evocative, but it's a veritable playground for somebody like Chef Anita Lowe, where she can take that direct connection to emotional memories from your life and use that to help infuse her dishes. And we can hear all of this at work as we listen to Anita Lowe describe the first dish that she brought out for us, which she created after a visit to Senegal. This is a salad of roasted baby beets um, with uh, cashew, uh, cocoa nib, and salim pepper, which wow. is a pepper that I brought back from Senegal. What is, the, what is the history behind this dish? How did you come up with it? And, and did it, was it evoked by any particular memory? You know, we, we draw on a repertoire of tastes, mm -hmm. and um, I think it's partly intellectual as well. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, there, there were beets in Senegal, chocolate is grown there, uh -huh. uh, cashew is grown there, and then um, the saline pepper is something that I found in um, the Cafe Tuba, which is this uh -huh. coffee that they make on the streets. Oh, wow. um, yeah, and it just, it's just this, like, beautifully, almost floral, peppery, earthy flavor, uh -huh. which I thought went well with all of these other earthy flavors. Huh. So um, we, we tested it out and um, 
you know, I, I, I think it works, and it's, it's, it's nice to have some. You know, I love vegetables, and I think we just don't really eat enough of them. So Yeah, I mean, um, this dish is particularly beautiful because of all the different colors of the beets. And there, are they baby beets? Yes. Baby beets. Okay, shall we, shall we try? Okay. Yeah. You can only look at it for so long before it's, it's <laughs> too, too much to take. So Anita, I've always wondered, and I wanted to ask a chef, um, do you feel like your um, taste and smell abilities are better or changed or modified by all the work you do in those modalities? I would uh, think that it's not that much better than anybody else's. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think um, I, I, I think it's just that I'm studied, you know? Mm -hmm. like I, I study, I think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. and. I spend hours just, you know, experiencing and just focusing focusing on, you know, that smell or that taste. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I I may be it may be easier for me to process it than other people. I yeah. I, I, I kind of think that I probably don't have a much better sense. I mean, w they do say that people who've got really amazing senses of smell and taste. Mm -hmm just don't like strong flavors oh really yeah because it's too it's too just too much it's, yeah. it's overwhelming uh -huh. and so you know I, I love all different kinds of flavors so. that's so interesting yeah. so as a neuroscientist one of the things that fascinates me is that there's only two parts of the brain where new brain cells get regenerated as we're adults one of them is in the hippocampus important for long-term memory but the other one is in the olfactory bulb and we know from studies in rats that if you, what they call, enrich the environment of these rats by giving them different smells to smell every single day, that you get even more new brain cells in your olfactory bulb. So I've always wondered, um, I thought it'd be very interesting to do an experiment with chefs relative to non-chefs in terms of the size of their olfactory bulbs. Because oh, that's you're thinking about it, yeah. you are certainly tasting and you're using your olfactory sense much more than, than I would. or well, I like to cook, so somebody that doesn't like to cook. Yeah. But um, that really makes very strong predictions about both the size of your olfactory bulb, how many neurons you have there, and also your discriminative power, which we probably already can tell it's, it's better than, than the normal person because you're, you're tasting different things more, more regularly. Does, does, your, does that mean that your sense of smell and your palate changes over time because it's regenerating or that's that I don't I don't know yeah. the answer to that question because yeah. I mean certainly people that have studied wine and sommelier and and you know differentiating they don't lose that over time yet there's all of this regeneration both taste and right. smell are such regenerative um, um, senses and that's the amazing thing that apparently when it regenerates particularly your olfactory sense which is very very complicated it somehow goes back to the same connections and you can retain that and maybe move forward because there's certainly not evidence that you get worse and worse as you uh, yeah you, no, no sommeliers have to have to practice they mm -hmm. um there was a sommelier that i studied under in in paris that um you know had and, and i bought one it it was a whole book of little individual smells uh-huh and um they would just go through and you know blind smell things uh -huh. and yeah. see if they could recognize it and if they didn't practice uh, they they couldn't you know uh -huh. it just wasn't retained yeah yeah so. so you may not have started out any better than everybody else but I would guess that you have enhanced your olfactory bulb much 
more than the average person because of the work that you do and all the olfactory enrichment that you have in your life. <laughs> Maybe that explains why chefs love to travel so much, mm. is that that gives them the opportunity to hoover in new um, smell sensations yeah. from all over the globe, and maybe that's part of, of stimulating that center in the brain. Good, good use of hoover. <laughs> <laughs> so it's clear that great chefs learn the old-fashioned way by practicing. They taste things and compare things and try things and memorize things and imagine new things to create their dishes. And they build up this smell and taste memory like a muscle in their brains in the same way that a pianist or cellist builds up those motor pathways in their brains. And this is not only for chefs. We all have the capacity to build our taste and smell abilities by, by simply challenging ourselves to taste different things and differentiate between different tastes and smells. And in doing that, we know that, that we are changing our brains and creating new cells in our olfactory bulbs and refining those olfactory capabilities. We all presumably, although I'm sure there are individual variations now, that we probably all have the capacity to become sommeliers, you know, to, to become experts at that sort of thing, or to be, you know, to take on, to become chefs and get into cuisine. But we, as we know from, from those guys' experiences, it takes enormous amounts of training. Well, with practice, we can build up our discriminating abilities in taste and smell. What's more difficult is to be able to verbalize and talk about it. And there again, we go back to looking at the anatomy of the system. So one thing that's unusual is there, there really isn't a, a very direct line of access from the olfactory system into the language areas of the brain, right, by which we learn to describe odors or describe other kinds of stimuli, whereas there are from other temporal lobe areas, for example, for visual stimuli and auditory stimuli, they eventually feed into the areas that are responsible for language. And that's the way we think of that pathway, right? It's sort of classic schoolbook uh, neuroanatomy is to go from the high-level visual and high-level auditory areas right into the verbal system. But there is no such pathway for olfaction. It has to go into effectively into the memory system, then back out into these other cortical areas, and finally back to back to the language system. So, if there's anything that's actually uh, deficient, and maybe this has to do with the inability to reimagine an odor, to, it's that there's a, a really a lack of any feedback pathway from the memory system back into uh, the olfactory system. And that's why it's so much easier to talk about the qualities of a visual experience or an auditory experience. But think about it. It's hard to describe an olfactory experience more than saying it smelled good or it smelled bad. For a second course at Anissa, Anita Lowe brought out a glistening brick of deep red meat. Ooh. Thank you, Anita. That looks terrific. What is this? So this is a steak tartare with bulgur, um, a sesame tofu sauce, black sesame, uh, Chinese chili oil, and some um, brik, which is a Tunisian pastry. This is based on a Lebanese uh, kibinai, mm. which is a, a steak tartare, which is usually more whipped and... Mm and served with pieces of, uh, of onion. But um, my chef de cuisine's uh, father was Lebanese, uh -huh. is Lebanese, and makes this um, at home. So, okay, dig in. Thank you. Yeah, so it's got cinnamon and allspice, which is oh, traditional. Oh, wow. Um, 
Yeah, and, and there's usually no chili or tofu for that matter. <laughs> and the color is really vibrant because the steak is uncooked. And so those myoglobin proteins, which provide that red pigment, are at their full effect. They haven't been denatured and, and browned, although that browning reaction, of course, does develop many wonderful flavor profiles itself. But the visual presentation here, where that, that red steak just jumps off the plate, is really great. I, I wonder, do you think that flavor comes from the chemical composition of foods, or do you think that flavor comes from the brain? Or does flavor come from somewhere else? Um. You know, I, I, I majored in French, <laughs> so I, I really think that um, flavor on some level comes, it, it, you know, it's a point of view. Then, then again, that exact same chemical compound could, you know, I could taste that in one way and bring my experience to that. Mm-hmm. And you would bring your experience to that way, and it would be completely different. Expectations matter, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Food and drink and sex are these these basic things that that drive our reward system. All of us, all animals, are driven by food, drink, and sex. And so, you, what you're doing is you're playing <laughs> with with these you know deeply seated, evolutionarily ancient reward systems. You know, I I, I think I, I do think food is is primal on mm-hmm. some level. I do yeah. think. Um, I mean, I think chefs are all hedonists, <laughs> you know, so. I think maybe scientists aren't sufficiently hedonistic. <laughs> <laughs> About certain things, yes. <laughs> it's true. It turns out that different senses differ in their ability to discriminate between different sensory stimuli on the one hand and discriminate on the hedonistic good versus bad scale on the other. So, for example, we in humans, uh, vision is largely a discriminative modality. Certainly there are pictures we look at that we just say are disgusting, but mostly those are learned. There aren't too many natural things that we look at that are automatically had a reverse reaction to it that we haven't learned in advance, right? And we use it, on the other hand, for making very fine discriminations in artwork and so on and so forth. At the other end of the extreme is pain, for example, for which we are terrible at discriminating pains, but who cares? They just are horrible, and you want to escape them no matter what. So they're very strong on the sort of hedonistic uh, or, or emotional end of the spectrum. Now, odors are really kind of right smack in the middle. So they're kind of the perfect optimum in which we can use both our discriminative capacity for odors so well, which chefs do and sommeliers do and so on, uh, on the one hand, and for which it's close enough to, to having this, these powerful connections to the emotional system, parts of the prefrontal cortex that are associated with with making value judgments and reward judgments, uh, the, the orbital frontal cortex. And that gives one that sort of higher cognitive sense of just how good something smells or tastes and so on. So it's really sitting on the middle of the teeter-totter between discriminatory senses and hedonism senses. Back at Anissa, our final dish certainly tipped the hedonistic meter to delicious. We had the chance to sample one of Anita's signature creations. Ooh, are these the soup dumplings? All right. So I'll definitely use my spoon here. Okay. It's, this is based on a Shanghai soup dumpling. Um, there's broth inside, so you, you want to gently pick up the dumpling with your with your chopsticks and put it Nita, into can the... Can you oh. hand that spoon over to me? Oh, here you go. Great, thanks. 
Okay. Let's see. Great. I'm gonna. And then you can bite. You can plate. bite a Oops. little bit of it off, and experience some of the broth. And it, that that way, some of the broth will go into the spoon. Mm. If oh my gosh. Yeah. So good. So this is. Um, you know, my father was from Shanghai, and in Shanghai they have these soup dumplings that are usually with pork and or crab. Mm-hmm. And um, mm. so. so Mm. I thought it'd be great to have it with foie gras, mm-hmm. um, make it a little more fine dining. Mm. Oh, is um, that what we're tasting? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and the broth is based on a, a recipe that my mother used to make, like a red cooked. She would make it with all different s- kinds of things, which is uh, red cooked chicken, mm-hmm. which was often served over rice, um, red cooked pork, red cooked duck. Um, but it's basically like a, a sauce made out of, um, or it's a broth with star anise cinnamon. Wow. Soy. That is delicious yeah. and intense flavors. Star anise and foie gras. Great. <laughs> Terrific. Yeah. I love that. Really <laughs> nice. Thank you very much, Anita. Yeah. Thank you. So, Anita, because this dish that we have in front of us um, is influenced from your childhood, what do you feel when you, when you eat it? Well, I think that's hard to say now because I have to taste it all the time just to mm-hmm. for, to make sure that it, it's consistent. Mm-hmm. I think in the beginning it was, yeah, it was that moment sitting down to our formica table in Michigan <laughs> with, you know, a steaming pot of red-cooked chicken and some rice and, mm. you know, shoveling that into my face. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of history with this dumpling. loved how my conversation with Chef Anita Lowe and chemist Kent Kirschenbaum over delicious food at Anissa naturally led to how much food, taste, and olfaction are part of our everyday life and how much it influences us, influences our pleasure and connection with each other. It reminds me of one of my favorite food quotes from a wonderful book called Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year in the Life of Food by author Barbara Kinsolver. In this book, she says, and I quote, cooking is definitely one of the things we do for fun around here. When I'm in a blue mood, I head for the kitchen. I turn the pages of my favorite cookbooks, summoning the perspective joyful noises of a shared meal. I stand over a bubbling soup, close my eyes, and inhale. From the ground up, Everything about nourishment steadies my soul. Cooking and eating and nourishment steadies my soul as well. Why is that? We learned today that the smells created by cooking have immediate access to the emotional centers of our brain and instantaneously provide that feeling of comfort and warmth and yumminess associated with really the best parts of our lives. We also learned that we can live those memories again and again when we smell something yummy that reminds us of these wonderful memories. Olfaction is such an evocative sense, but it's still one of the final frontiers of sensory neuroscience research. Neuroscientists focused on studying smell are delving into a mysterious and primal sensory system. You've been listening to Totally Cerebral from PRX, produced by Julie Burstein, 
with editing and sound design by Derek John. Location recording by David Gorin in New York and Ken Rogers in Boston. Our executive producer is John Barth, and we've had help from Genevieve Sponsler and Lily Bowie. This episode was recorded at Anissa Restaurant and Argo Studios in New York City. Thanks to Chef Anita Lowe, chemist Kent Kirschenbaum, and neuroscientist Howard Eigenbaum. I'm Dr. Wendy Suzuki. episode of Transistor was supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information on Sloan at sloan.org.